Good morning, everyone. Good to see you. If you've not met me, my name's Stuart. I'm leading the church here. Very warm welcome. If you've got a Bible, could you turn to Mark chapter 14? Gospel of Mark chapter 14. We're going back to um, our sermon series through the book of Mark. We're nearing the end. We've been, we started last sort of September, and we're almost done. By the end of summer, we will have finished out the whole gospel in just over 12 months. Before we get into that, though, I have a book recommendation for you. I, usually, I like to read good Christian books. I then like to recommend uh, some to you. This is one I was at a conference last week, I think. It, I can't remember. It all blurs. Last week or the week before. And this book was actually read to me during the conference. And I thought, that's a good. So I got um, a, cop- a couple, few copies of it. This is called The Boy from the House of Bread by a guy called Andrew Wilson, and it's aimed for sort of four to eight-year-olds, and it's a fantastic story. When our kids were small, and we used to read them the Bible stories and stuff, we went through all the toddler Bibles and all the other bits and pieces, and we had great books on Bible stories. What we found is we had a set of really good ones, and then, and then we found that we'd run out, and we end up reading the same ones over and over and over again, which are good, but at a point it becomes like, do we have to read that one again? Really? Aren't there any other ones on the market? So here's one to add. This is an excellent uh, rhyming book uh, about the um, the boy from the house of bread. The house of bread is just a translation of the biblical place of Bethlehem. It's the house of bread. This is all about Jesus. So it's a fantastic story. If you've got young children, uh, please grab a copy of this. Read it to them. I gave it to my 11-year-old and said, read that. What do you think? He said, it's awesome. So... um, there are three copies here if you want them. Come and grab one and um, read that with your kids. All right, Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. What we've got here, beginning of Mark chapter 14, we looked at last time. Um, we've got to the final few days of Jesus' life. Final few days of Jesus' life. The Passover festival was drawing near. We saw that in verse 1. It's a huge national festival. But within the midst of that, the religious leaders were planning to kill Jesus. That was the plan that was afoot. They've decided they've had enough of this preacher from Galilee and what he's saying about them and the temple, what he's saying about himself as being God come to earth, bringing in his kingdom. And in the midst of that, a woman, an unnamed woman, comes and in the middle of a public gathering in a house where they're eating, she comes and anoints Jesus' body for burial. And Jesus commends her action and said it was a beautiful thing that she did and that from that point forth, what she's done will be proclaimed wherever the good news of Jesus is proclaimed. And we are evidence of that because we talked about that last time. And then after that, we saw that Judas, one of Jesus' disciples, agreed to portray Jesus. So it's all kind of coming together, the final strands of the plot to the culmination of Jesus' life and mission. And we're going to read the next few um, verses together. They're going to appear on the screen behind. I'm going to read them to you, so why don't you just follow along with me. It says this. We're going to start at verse 12, where we pick up. It says, on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples, and he said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you, and follow him. 
And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready there prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And as he was as, sorry, and when it was evening, he came with the twelve, and as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and say to him, one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping his bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day that I, when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the cock crows twice, you'll deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. All right, big idea of what we're going to look at today is that when we take bread and wine, remember that Jesus died for our sins, rose from the dead, and will one day return. When we take bread and wine, we remember that Jesus died for our sins, rose from the dead, and will one day return. Right. We're going to go through this, four sections of this passage. We're going to look at preparation, betrayal, the Last Supper, and then abandonment at the end. The first one, the preparation. So, Passover's coming, and the disciples question Jesus, because we saw from verse 1, the context is the Passover, and then the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which comes immediately after that. The Passover is a massive festival in the Jewish tradition, uh, in the culture at the time. It looked backed to Exodus, at the beginning of our Bible, where God um, led his people out of slavery uh, to Egypt. Um, and so it was a huge celebration of the Lord's deliverance and remembering they were once slave and now free, and that God had set them free through Moses, plagues, all sort of that. It was a festival that involved a sacrificing a lamb. The lamb was killed. Blood was put on the doorposts and the lintel of the house. Um, and so when the angel passed over on the 10th plague, he would pass over their house and they wouldn't receive the judgment. And according to Deuteronomy 15, that this was to be celebrated within the city of Jerusalem. So at the time in the city of Jerusalem, the historian Josephus, the Jewish historian, says that there would be as many as 250,000 lambs killed for the Passover. And as many as over 2 million people present came to the city, including the the inhabitants, but extras came in. So there was over 2 million people there, hundreds of thousands of lambs were killed, and into this context, Mark is talking about Jesus, and he's setting Jesus up in the narrative as Jesus is the perfect Passover lamb 
to be sacrificed. And in the context, we've got the disciples are saying to Jesus, well, where are we going to celebrate the meal? For them, the meal is the important thing, what's coming. And Jesus then says, right, he gives them instructions. So he sends them out. And this is a very similar feel if you go back to the beginning of chapter 11, where Jesus entered Jerusalem on the donkey, Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry, where Jesus gives these kind of cryptic instructions and says, go do this. So he sends out two unnamed disciples. They're on this mysterious errand. First one in chapter 11, it was to go and find the donkey and then bring the donkey back. But it was a donkey that hadn't been ridden. And the gospels say that if you meet someone, you say this to them. And here Jesus is saying, well, you need to go and find someone who is carrying water, a man carrying a water jar, which would have been strange for a number of reasons. One, how are you going to spot one guy with a water jar in amongst two million people who've arrived in Jerusalem is beyond me. But it's also, it's a man carrying a water jar, which traditionally at the time, we, we find it was a woman's job. That was a pink job. Because we have John 4, the woman at the well in Samaria. It was the woman who went and collected the water from the well. So there's something unusual happening. So they're sent into the city. They're, they're to follow him. They're to go to a place. And what happened was, uh, the residents of Jerusalem at the time, it was expected that if they had spare rooms, that they would make them available for the pilgrims who'd come into Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. So basically, give everyone space, room to do it. And this was likely to be a wealthy resident of Jerusalem because they had a, a large upper room that was ready to go for pilgrims to come in. And it says, once you find this, you go there and then you make preparations for the meal. And so the meal is they're going to do it according to law, according to culture. They're going to celebrate this Passover meal and Jesus is going to celebrate it with his disciples. So everything's been set up there by Jesus. And what we see in that is Jesus, Jesus as God himself is sovereignly in control of the situation. Disciples come to him with a reasonable question, where are we going to eat dinner tonight because it's the Passover? And Jesus shows he is in total control. He knows there's a room, he knows it's ready, he knows there's someone with a water jar. He says, you go find him, you, you lead, he'll lead you back to the place. The teacher wants this room, they'll let him have it. Jesus is in complete control of what is happening. Never ever think that what happened to Jesus was kind of circumstances conspiring against him. Jesus is in total control. And then the last three sections of this passage that we're going to look at come back to another Mark sandwich. We've been going through the Gospel of Mark, and we found out one of his favorite literary techniques is to use a sandwich structure to make some points. And the way it works is like any ordinary sandwich. You have bread on both sides, and in the middle you have a filling. And here we've got two pieces of the bread that have the same theme, and then we have something in the middle which helps us interpret the outer side of the bread. Sorry, my stand is falling. Let me just put this so it doesn't do that. So what we've got here, we've got the first section, which is the betrayal of the disciples, 17 to 21. Then we've got the Last Supper in the middle. And then the final bit, we've got the abandonment of the disciples. So you can see the theme coming out there of what's, got, what's happening um, in the middle. And so what we have is Jesus sacrificing himself in the middle with the giving of the Last Supper, my body, my blood being shed. And on the outside of the sandwich, we've got the disciples letting him down spectacularly, which is a wonderful fulfillment of Romans 5.8 that says, but God shows his love for us and that while we were sinners, Christ still died 
And so even though disciples are doing what they're doing, Jesus is set on his mission to save sinners from their sins. So the first section, betrayal, verses 17 to 21. It says he came with the 12, right at the beginning there, verse 17. That is the last time Jesus will be together with the 12 disciples. We've seen the last time he'll enter the temple, the last time he'll be together with the 12. And they are eating the meal. They are coming together. Now, the meal at this time had been around for hundreds and hundreds of years in Jewish culture. There were many parts of the meal. Um, The Passover meal, what they ate was set. They'd obviously have the lamb. They'd have the unleavened bread. They would have the bitter herbs to remind them of their time in slavery. The meal was broken into four parts, each part ending with the drinking of a cup of wine. Uh, There were blessings pronounced to the gathered kind of family group there. Um, There were Old Testament readings. There were psalms that were sung. Psalms 113 to 118 were kind of sung throughout uh, the evening and recited. Deuteronomy 26 verses 5 to 9 was also recited, and it was a time to remember God's deliverance for his people. But this meal takes a particularly difficult turn because Jesus, in the midst of this time of remembering God's salvation for his people, Jesus makes a prediction, and he says, truly I say to you... One of you is going to betray me, one who's eating with me. Eating together was a sign of hospitality, a sign of fellowship, a sign of closeness. You ate together with people you were connected to and you had relationships to. And into that context, Jesus is saying, one of you is going to betray me. And so we've got a pool of suspects there, like a classic whodunit. There's 12 of the disciples there. One of you is going to betray me. Now, we know from a bit of, you know, being around church, but also Mark's revealed it in his gospel thus far. Who's going to betray Jesus? We know it's Judas. We know that. He's one of the 12. But Jesus doesn't say that. And what he's saying, there's an allusion there to Psalm 41 about a righteous man being betrayed. And the ambiguity of Jesus' statement means all the disciples suddenly are like, whoa, is it me? Is it I? They're kind of questioning themselves. It's fascinating from here. They don't all point at Judas. I always find this strange. There should be, what, 11 hands or 11 fingers all going, it's him. It's clearly Judas. But the fact is Judas looked just like them. He looked just like them. And so they didn't know what he had done. They didn't know what was going on in his heart. So he just looked like the 12 disciples, the rest, sorry, the rest of the 11 disciples. So there he was. And it says they were sorrowful, which means they were, they were grieved at this. Unfortunately, this is the same word used to describe the rich young ruler in chapter 10, that Jesus says, the rich young ruler came to him and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, sell all your possessions, come follow me. And it says that he was sorrowful because he had great possessions, but it did not lead to repentance and change of heart. So the disciples are in the same boat here. They're sorrowful, but it doesn't seem like it's going to lead to a change. Jesus specifies it's going to be one of you. It's going to be one of the 12, which are Jesus' closest companions. And if you were thinking about who Jesus moved with, there was a wider crowd. There was the women involved. There were other people. If you were going to think one of them was going to betray Jesus, you wouldn't pick the 12 because they're like, they're like the closest. They're Jesus' closest followers. And again, Mark is reminding us, proximity to Jesus doesn't necessarily result in changed hearts, because that's what was happening with Judas. He says, one of you dipping uh, your bread into the dish with me, which means you had to be really close because they're eating the meal together. 
They were eating the meal together, and they'd have been dipping their bread into the dish with the bitter herbs, which represented the slavery that they'd had in Egypt. All the irony there. And we know one disciple betrayed Jesus, but the other thing to bear in mind is by the following morning, all of them had, because they'd all left him. One had done the dirty deed, but all of them were guilty before me. And Jesus said, this is written, it is because of Scripture that this is coming about. Again, a reminder that this is not circumstances conspiring against Jesus. This is all the sovereign hand of God. And Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man, which only he does, and saying, actually, I'm the one. It's been written that this will happen to me. I will be betrayed. But actually... There's also going to be judgment for the one who betrayed me. And what we've got here to remember is there's two kind of tensions we have to hold when we're examining Scripture. We have the sovereignty of God. He's in charge. He's over everything. He is ruling and reigning, and all things are working for his purpose and his will. But at the same time, we have human responsibility, which means we are fundamentally um, responsible for everything we think, say, and do. And we will be held accountable for those things. And both are true. And so we have the sovereign hand of God being worked out in the betrayal of Judas. But actually at the same time, Judas will face judgment for his actions. And he is still under, under that. And we have to take that seriously. Our own actions are um, something we are responsible for. Then we get to the third part, the middle bit of the sandwich which is the Last Supper itself. And with Mark, it's unusual, very brief, very concise with what he's doing. And so in the context of one of you is going to betray me, and in fact, one of you will do the deed, but all the rest of you are going to end up leaving me as well, betraying me in that sense, Jesus institutes the Last Supper. And it says he took bread... And it says he broke it. And if you look at the, the verbs that use, associate with Jesus here, it says he takes, he blesses, he breaks, he gives, and then he says. Jesus is in total authority and total command of this situation. Despite what's swirling around him, things people are saying and doing against him, he is in total control. He is dictating. And he takes the bread, which was part of the meal, representing his body, meaning his whole being, and he breaks it before them and he gives it to them so the imagery there is powerful Jesus is saying this is my body and it's going to be broken signifying his death which is going to come his graphic horrific death but in the midst of that he says not only is it going to be broken it's for you I'm giving it to you and who's he giving it to well the context is he's giving it to the 12 the 12 who we know One of them is a betrayer, and the remaining 11 aren't going to perform very well in the next 24 hours. But into that context, Jesus said, I'm still willing to give my life for you. And then it says he took the cup, and he gave thanks, and he gave it to them, and they all drank it. If you go through this text and look for the alls, you'll find out they all drink it, but then Jesus says later, they're all going to fall away. And so even those who are partaking of what Jesus is giving are going to end up failing him. And Jesus said this is the blood of the new covenant. Jewish thought at the time was that life was represented in the blood. So when Jesus is talking about blood, he's talking about his very life. He's talked about the bread, his body, his whole being. He's talked about the blood, which is his life. And it is going to be given to them and it is going to be poured out for them. A key thing to remember when we look at the Last Supper, it is not a meal of merit. 
because none of them deserve to be there. It is a meal of grace. Jesus is giving himself for them, knowing what they're going to do. And they are going to fail spectacularly, yet he still does it. He still chooses to love and to serve them. And it says, he will pour out, my blood will be poured out for many, which is the full encompassing nature of Jesus' death. Not just for them, but there are many others beyond that who will then partake in it. And he says that my blood is going to be of a new covenant. This reference is back to Exodus 24, uh, where Moses instituted um, the covenant there at Mount Sinai and blood was from the sacrifices was sort of flicked on the people. Jesus is taking that and saying, actually, this is my blood being poured out, but it's also a new covenant, according to Jeremiah 31, which will be an internal covenant, where Jesus said, I will write my laws on your heart. You will get a new heart. Your old heart will go. You will get a new heart. So something new is being established here. We've seen that already with the temple. We've had the whole conflict scene with the temple, and what does it end with? Jesus' words of judgment over the temple saying, this old order is going to pass away. This physical building that we've been to for worships and sacrifice is no longer going to be there. I'm the new temple, and it's my body that's going to be the new covenant. My blood is going to be the new covenant. Something is starting, no longer external, but now internal. And Jesus is saying, my sacrifice, my coming death is the thing that is going to bring this about. And then he shifts focus and he looks to the future and says, I'm not going to drink this wine again until I drink it in the kingdom of God. And it begins with that, truly I say to you. And he's a reminder that actually what he's saying is vital. There's going to be a fulfillment in what he's doing. Jesus is going to die. Something's going to happen. There's going to be a new covenant inaugurated. And he says, I'm not going to come back to this thing until you see it again in the new kingdom with me. And so Jesus knows what's coming. He knows what's happening. And then it says, when they finished, it said they sung a hymn, which would be one of those Psalms, um, Psalm 113, 118, and they went out to the Mount of Olives. And so we've had Jesus' prediction of betrayal. We've had the Last Supper, the inauguration of this new covenant. And then finally, the final second part of that sandwich Jesus has taken his 12 away, and he says to them, you will all fall away. So having done what Jesus has done, he just said, I'm just giving my life for you. The first thing he says after that is, you're all going to fall away and leave me. You're all going to fall away and leave me. And he quotes um, Zechariah 13, when it says, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered And that's just another prediction of his coming death. Jesus will be taken, he will be struck, and those, the sheep, the twelve, will be scattered. They will flee. But, he says, after that I will be raised up, and I will go before you to Galilee. So even within this death, this sadness that's coming, there is the promise of victory. Jesus says, I will rise again. And I will go before you to Galilee. Galilee is significant because that's where the first whole section of Mark's gospel took place, where Jesus began his public ministry, where the disciples were from. And says, I will go before you. I will be there with you. So although this is going to happen, you're going to fall. I'm going to rise from death, and I will draw you back to myself. The grace of God in evidence there. And then Peter starts speaking. God bless Peter. 
And he says, in the midst of it all, just, just for the record, you might want to go and check this. Chapters 8, 9, and 10, Jesus predicts his coming death. There's three of them on the, in the on the way section in Mark's gospel. We saw Jesus predicting his death. Every time Jesus did that, something happened afterwards where the disciples completely showed their true colors and completely messed up. So find each one, read what happens after and think, oh my goodness, Jesus does it again. The 12 are there. Guess what? The disciples, instead of saying, yes, Lord, we see this, we'll follow you. Peter says, verse 29, even though they all fall away, those losers, the other 11, I'm not going to. I'm not going to. I'm better than they are, is effectively what he's saying. I am more committed to them. I am stronger, more faithful, more loyal than those other chumps that you called to make up the 12. And what does Jesus say to him? And Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, there's that, when Jesus starts with truly I tell you, you know something's coming heavy. He says, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. So Jesus is making it really clear there's been a prediction of betrayal, there's a prediction of abandonment by the disciples, and now it's really specific for Peter. You're the one who's going to deny me, and you're going to do it three times. It's not just once, oops. It's three times, one after the other, and he even puts a time limit on it before the rooster crows twice. And then what does Peter do? Oh, I do love Peter. He doubles down. But he said emphatically, emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. You're like, oh, Peter. And then, of course, because it's not just Peter, we, we single him out, and they all said the same. They all said the same. So all the disciples... We're in the same boat. No, we're with you to the end, Lord. We're, we're going to be the ones. If, they, if you die, we will die right alongside you. We're going to be with you. In the face of Jesus saying, you're all going to fall away. You're all going to leave me. And do you see what Mark has done there in the way he's put his material together? He's set the scene up with the preparation. The Passover's coming, this key festival that had been part of the tradition of the people of Israel, the people of God, for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. So it comes around kind of as normal. And then he sets it up with Jesus saying, actually, there's going to be betrayal from you. There's going to be a, you're going to let me down. He then goes to the supper and says, actually, I'm going to die for you anyway. This is a new covenant that I'm starting. And then right after that is another further prediction. You're all going to leave me. You're all going to run away. You're all going to fail me. But the key is the middle part of the sandwich, which was in the face of that. Jesus knowing that. Jesus being in complete control of the situation. He still willingly goes to the cross. He still willingly goes to die for those who would fail him. He still willingly chooses to suffer to save sinful men and women and to draw them to himself. A couple of things I just want to highlight and then we will finish and take some bread and wine together. First one, Jesus died in our place for our sins. Jesus died in our place for our sins. 
We are getting to the culmination of Mark's gospel. We're getting to the kind of highlight, the reason Jesus came to earth. He came to die. Mark has been stacking up illusions. He's been stacking up predictions from Jesus. And it's all culminating in what's going to happen over the next day or so in the life of Jesus. Jesus has clearly predicted his death three times. He knows the plots that have been hatched against him. Mark has outlined to them. He has squarely put Jesus as the Passover lamb. Jesus is the one who's come to die. Not just like the 250,000 other lambs that have been sacrificed on the Passover. He is the perfect, spotless lamb who came to die once for all. Not to release people from slavery and oppression to an earthly power like Rome, who were in control of the land at the time, or Egypt many hundreds of years before, who had kept the people in slavery. He came to free people from the ultimate slavery, which was the slavery to sin and death. The great bondage of mankind who lived in rebellion to God and rightly stood under God's judgment. Because God is holy. He is righteous. He is above. He is the one who rules and reigns. And we are subject to that. And all of us have fallen and failed and fallen short short of that in our thoughts, our words, and our deeds. In the things that we have done and also the things we haven't done that we should have done. And rightly we stand under his Judgments. We all, like the disciples, are cowards and rebels who flee from God's authority and abandon him and don't follow him. Yet into that, Jesus comes and he dies for us, that we might be set free, that we might be free from that penalty. He is the perfect, spotless Passover lamb who dies once for all that there needs to be no more sacrifices because he did it. We are called to repent of our sins, turn away from living our own way, put our faith and trust in Jesus, come to him and say, we need you, God. We're sorry for what we've done and trust him and become followers of him. If you're not a Christian here, that's what you need to do. If you're not a follower of Jesus, you need to repent of your sin. You need to come back to him. You need to put your faith and trust in him alone. If you are a Christian here, that is something you've happened. But like the disciples, we continually fail. And so we need to come back to him daily to seek forgiveness for our sins, to seek cleansing from the stain of that, to put our faith back and trust in him again and again and again. And it's something that we need to be constantly reminding ourselves because If you're anything like me, we constantly forget. Our memories fade. We just, things go out of our mind. Things that were once primary just get crowded out with everything else that's happening. And so we have to remind ourselves, which brings me on to the last one. Jesus has given us a way to remember. Jesus gave two ordinances to his church, two commands, two things we are to do. The first one is baptism. It's a one-off sign of commitment of what it means to follow Jesus. If you were here last week, you saw six people go through that process. It's wonderful. If you're here and you're not baptized, we'd love to help you sort that out. That's something Jesus commanded us to do. He did it, and then he told us to do it. The second thing he gave us was to serve bread and wine regularly and do this in remembrance of him. And we are to continue to do it until he returns. And when he returns, there'll be that time when he says, I'm going to eat this, drink this with you in the kingdom in the future. And so as God's people, we are to take bread and wine regularly. And as we do it, we are to remember three things. We are to look back 
we are to remember Jesus' death on the cross that paid the penalty for our sin in his substitutionary atoning death. We are to remember the forgiveness that we have received, that we now stand before the Father and are declared not guilty before him. We have been justified by our faith. We have been cleansed from our sins so we can stand before a holy and righteous God. There is no more guilt. There is no more shame. Not because we've earned it, but because we've received it from Jesus and his perfect righteousness. We've been adopted into his family, and so we can come to our Father in heaven and make bold requests of him. We remember Jesus rose bodily from death. He ascended into heaven where he rules and reigns, and we have union through him in faith with Jesus with, by his Spirit. And so that's what we look back on. We also look to the present, to the now. When we take bread and wine, whether we do it in our Sunday now, when we do it in our life groups, we remember that Jesus is with us now by his Spirit. That whatever you're facing, whatever you're going through, whatever you feel like, Jesus is with you. If you know you're in the position of those disciples, you think, man, I've had a bad week, feel like I've failed Jesus so many times. You come back to him and you get that dealt with. You remember his sustaining grace that holds you and carries you, whatever the pressures of life are, whatever's raining in on you, whatever you're living through, God's sustaining grace is here for you by his spirit. And when we take the bread and wine, we remember that. And we also look to the future, where one day Jesus will turn in glory and judge all mankind, and every eye will see and everyone will know that he is Christ the Lord and every knee will bow before him. And his kingdom will come in its fullness and there will be a final banquet in the new heavens and the new earth. And we will see Jesus face to face. And so whatever life looks like now, we can look to the future with faith and say this is what's coming. And so we are to share bread and wine regularly. We do it on our Sundays every so often. We do it way more often in our life groups. If you haven't done it in your life groups Make sure that's part of it. We're going to do it in church at prayer this week. It's just another opportunity to remember. Even if you're gathering together with friends, sharing some bread, sharing some wine, is an opportunity to remember the Lord's death until he returns. We are to look back, we are to look to the present, and we are to look to the future. So if you've got, if you want to stand and grab your, if you didn't get a little cup, come and grab one from the front. There's some gluten-free wafers down here for you as well. Maybe the band want to come up. I'm going to lead you in this, so bring your little cup, and then we'll, um, we'll spend some time worshiping together. I'd love you to open it up, get your little wafer out, get your little juice ready. It's non-alcoholic. And I want us just to start by taking a moment. Maybe you want to bow your heads. And I'm just going to lead us through some prayers for us, and then we're going to take bread and wine together, and then we're going to, we're going to sing. The Bible tells us that as we come to the Lord's table, as we come to do this, we need to make sure we're right. If there's things in our life that we need to get right, now is the opportunity to do it. So if you know there are things in your life that you need to get right before God's sins, you need to repent of things, you need to say sorry, sorry for, do that now. 
Do some business with the Lord, acknowledging him. What we're about to take reminds us that it is freely available to us by grace through faith. So do that now. As we take um, the bread, the wafer, and we remember Jesus' body broken for us, I want us to remember that God's sustaining grace is available right here, right now for you, whatever it is. So as we take the bread, as we drink the wine, that you know that God is available. And if you know there are things that you need to bring before him for your present right here, right now, do that. We'll take them and then I'll give you an opportunity to do some business with the Lord. So take your bread, the body of Jesus broken for you. Amen. And we take the wine of the new covenant that Jesus poured out for many and we remember his death in our place for our sin. The blood of Jesus shed for you. Amen. Holy Spirit, you are here with us now, Lord, and we thank you for that, Lord God. We, you know what each of us are going through in our lives right now, Lord God. We ask for your Spirit to be poured out on us, to sustain us in times of trials, in times of hardship, in times of suffering, in times of joy, in times of grief, in times of abundance, and in times of lack. God, we thank you for your death in our place. Lord, we thank you that you are ultimately all we need to live this life by your grace. Lord, we also look to the future, Lord, and we say, we look forward to your return one day, Lord. And while we wait, we live in faith for that, Lord Jesus. We praise you for this meal we can share together as your people. We ask you come fill us afresh today, Lord Jesus, that we remember all that you've done for us, you continue to do for us, and you will one day ultimately do for us. God's people said.